Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 2. Thank you, Anne and Asha and Colette. Well, Merry Christmas. I hope you're doing, uh, doing well as you enter the, Christ, the real Christmas week here. I know the students are, are gone, but a lot of excitement in our house as we get closer to uh, the, the holiday itself. We went to a Christmas symphony orchestra concert this week, so if you weren't in the mood of Christmas before, go hear some Christmas music. It was a great time, and, uh, and, and it gave us a lot of great joy. And we're going to speak a little bit about joy this morning. And the question comes, what is joy? What is joy? You see the word on Christmas cards. You see uh, on maybe a Christmas billboard says joy to the world. We sing about that, of course. Do you have joy and are you sharing the gospel of joy with others? We'll look at that today. But as I was listening to the Christmas uh, songs being played at the concert this week, I had joy. But I don't know if I could have defined it, but I knew I had it, right? Because I was excited about uh, the birth of Christ, and we were rejoicing in that, enjoying that with family. I knew I had joy at that moment, but I don't know if I could have fully defined it for you. Obviously, it's more than a happiness. We know as believers, a joy is a settled peace in God's sovereignty in our heart. But more than define it, I think we know it when we have it, and we know it when we see it. And this joy was proclaimed in Luke chapter 2. To some shepherds who became the first human evangelists of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at their story here in just a moment. But the world is in need of great joy, is it not? We know that individually, personally, in our hearts, and the people around us. We know it statistically as well. So I looked up and I found this week, the Gallup poll, of course, does a survey periodically they call the mood of the nation. How do people feel about what's going on in the world? And this is for the United States at this time. How do Americans feel about things in the world? And they leave it pretty open-ended. Most of the time it ends up being somewhat political in what people talk about. The highest ever recorded in this poll was in 1999 when 71% of Americans were satisfied with how things were in the world. That seems very high to me. The lowest was in 2008, in the financial crisis at that time, and at that time, 7% of people were satisfied. In May of 2023, which I think is the most recent one that they've done, 18% of Americans were satisfied with how things are in our country today. And it does have a somewhat of a political component to that, but they let it be open-ended. But I think, personally, the people in your life, if you look around, our stress levels seem to be high. Our anxiety seems to be high. Our, if we look at um, the things that concern us, the burdens that weigh us down, we would say, yeah, there's many of us, maybe even most of us, feel the heaviness of what's going on both globally or nationally or locally or maybe just in our personal life and family, we need joy. And the news of Jesus' birth proclaimed by the angels was good news that brought great joy. And as, and as simple as it seems, each year at Christmas time, it is appropriate for us to meditate on that joy that comes because God became a human being. 
He entered the broken, seemingly joyless circumstance that we find ourselves in sometimes. And he brought a ray of great hope and great joy. The kind of joy that fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. The kind of joy that addresses the need of our true condition. The greatest reason for our lack of joy is not circumstantial, it's not political, it's that we're separated from God. And the coming of Jesus Christ is news of great joy because it addresses that condition. So hopefully this week you get to share Christ's joy with somebody. Hopefully you get to share happy times. But hopefully you will have a conversation of great joy with someone where you get to tell them that they can have joy and peace in Christ because God became a human being to reconcile them to God. That's the core message of joy that we celebrate this time of year. This joy can do more than bring an uptick in our outlook or increase that mood of the nation statistic. It can do a lot more than that. It can bring a lot more than temporary relief to our stress levels. It can bring satisfaction to the need of our heart. And just as shadows on the ground can disappear with the entrance of a great light, the birth of Jesus Christ and his salvation really brings a spotlight to the human heart by revealing our need for him and overwhelming the shadows of our soul. This week, I was in Atlanta for a couple of days for some Air Force training. And the content of that training was a researcher who has spent a lot of time studying the benefits of religion for people's mental health. And if you read the Bible, you'll, you shouldn't be surprised by results that would say that religion has some benefits for people's mental health. But this is a, he's a believer, but he's a, he's a researcher at Duke University. And he spent a lot of time through uh, peer-reviewed studies looking at, at the benefits on uh, people's psychiatric health, on their stress and anxiety or depression, things like that. And, and as I'm listening to this, it, again, it's the biblical concept of joy. Is there substance that brings someone above the difficulties of their life? And, and, and the gospel of Christ is that light that shines on the human heart. The human heart that without Christ expresses its need in all these things that disturb our soul. So the question today is, is really about your response to the birth of Jesus. Well, we'll see the shepherds in a moment, these first evangelists, who responded to the birth of Jesus by hearing, by believing, by coming to worship Christ, and then proclaiming the joy that they had seen. So I ask you... How will you respond to the birth of Jesus? This birth was announced on a hillside to shepherds, and those shepherds will show us how we can respond. By way of background, thank you, Joseph, for reading the first part of Luke chapter 1. I suggested this week that we read Luke 1 in our scripture reading, and Mary Margaret said it's 80 verses long. So can we divide it for two weeks? I said, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. That would be a good scripture for two weeks. But Luke chapter 1 tells us of the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary by the angel that we read about today. And then in Luke chapter 2, we, we read of a, 
of a political decision, a governmental event, a world-changing decree from Caesar Augustus. Would you read with me in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Augustus Caesar issues a mandate, a mandate for a census, for a registration, requiring everyone to return to their birthplace for registration and likely taxation. I don't know that that was a popular government order, especially if it resulted in more taxes. But just as the story of Jesus begins with this world-changing order, Jesus' birth would bring a much different but even more drastic change to the world as he's born to be a new king, an everlasting king. So Joseph, in obedience to this order, journeys to the place of his birth, the city of David, Bethlehem. As we know from 1 Samuel 17, 12, says now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. As the ruler of the house of David, Jesus, like David, is from Bethlehem. David, interestingly, is the first of a few shepherds we meet in Luke chapter 2. The first one referenced here, but not the last. The good shepherd will be born. His birth will be announced to a group of shepherds very soon. But here in Luke 2, we're learning that God is fulfilling his long-foretold prophecies concerning the Messiah. And he does that, first of all, through this order from Caesar Augustus that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Jesus' birth fulfills this prophecy and it shows how his coming into the world is the culmination of God's redemptive plan long foretold to save his people. Jesus, God in human flesh, is the very expression of this eternal plan of salvation. Now, how did the events in human history line up in such a way that this prophecy was fulfilled? Was it the result of God's divine work? Or was it, was it the result of a government order by Augustus Caesar, instructing Joseph just at the right time to journey to Bethlehem. Seems like a great coincidence, doesn't it? And this is what commentator Joel Green calls a conjunction of intentions. I love that. A conjunction, an intersection of intentions. Was it the result of Caesar Augustus' decision? That Joseph ended up in Bethlehem at the right time when Mary was with child? Well, yes, on a human level of intention it was. But even the most powerful of human rulers, whose one word 
could change the lives of thousands of people. He was serving a higher authority, whether he knew it or not. A higher throne. The intentions of Almighty God were reigning through his decisions. And I love this aspect of the Christmas story. Because into this world of sin, Christ came. A world that may have seemed out of control, that still today sometimes seems out of control. But his very coming, his incarnation, and the fulfillment of the prophecies of it demonstrate God's sovereignty, not just in spite of human action, but God's sovereignty through human action. The intentions of God overrule. We see that in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Perhaps the greatest Old Testament example of the conjunction of intentions. What you meant for evil, Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. God meant for good. Joseph's brothers had treated him horribly. Their intentions were evil. But God's intentions worked through even their sinful action to bring about his good end. Of exalting Joseph to a place of leadership so that he could save his family. As we apply that to our government decisions that are made today, we have to reflect that same kind of trust in the Lord. We tend to point to God's authority when human authorities make decisions we agree with. And we say, thank you, God, for leading them to make this decision. And it's a political decision or it's a governmental decision. And we say, see, it lines up with your will. We praise you for that. But we should recognize God's hand even when human rulers make decisions that we don't agree with or appreciate. Even that seem contradictory to God's plans as we understand them. Because God doesn't just work in spite of human rulers, but precisely through their decisions to bring about his good ends. The greatest example of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 28, Peter at Pentecost says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But the blame for their evil intentions was still on those who killed Jesus. He says, you crucified this Jesus and killed by the hands of lawless men. The religious leaders purposed in their hearts to do evil, to kill and to crucify Christ. A sinful intention and action if there ever was one. But the same event had another actor. A higher Intention, a higher plan at work. Their intentions were according to God's plan. Now explain exactly the relationship there. I can't do better than that. Than to say that God's intentions overrule and work through the actions of mankind. The same here with Caesar Augustus' order. Just so happened, the order came... And the travel time coincided for Joseph and Mary to be in the place long foretold where Jesus would be born. And I know we're not to the shepherd's part of the story yet, but, and we're getting to the good news of great joy. But seeing God's sovereignty at work is actually what gives us great joy. 
Seeing God's sovereign hand at work is what gives us great joy, not when the circumstances align to our expectation, but when we understand his power at work. So maybe this week when you're sharing the joy of Christmas with someone, they may be experiencing great pain. You may not be able to explain why everything's going on in their heart and life. But what will bring them true joy is if you and they point your attention to the sovereign hand of God. So even using this part of the Christmas story to do that may be a great way to share joy with them. Now to Luke chapter 1 verse 6 and we get to the birth of Christ. And while they were there, maybe not necessarily exactly right when they arrived, but while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The time came. Your, your, your translation may say the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. A reference, yes, to the Virgin Mary's pregnancy progressing, but also to the prophecies being fulfilled for Christ to be born. All is going according to God's salvation plan. Verse 7 says she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now Mary and Joseph went on to have other children, but this was Mary's firstborn. And, and right now we are explaining to my daughter Gretchen, who will be five years old next month, how Mary is the mother of Jesus and that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. And, uh, and we looking at Luke 1 and Luke 2 to explain that. That's hard for me to understand. It's really hard for her to understand. Uh, but it's a miracle that happened, and we're, we rejoice in that. Jesus was laid in a manger. And much of the Christmas nativity scenes are built off of just this little phrase here. We don't know a lot of detail. We don't know if it was a stable or a cave or downstairs in a house, wherever the animals uh, ate and probably were kept. We don't know much, much detail besides these few words of description. But it was not the likely place for the birth of a king. We can't be certain of the exact order of events of when they arrived in Bethlehem, did he knock on the inn door and then she, he, Jesus was born 30 minutes later? You know, we don't, we, don't we don't know if that's exactly how it happened. But what is known is that because of overcrowded conditions, Mary and Joseph were staying in a place where animals usually stayed. Maybe due to the crowded conditions, Mary, Joseph had, had, had brought them away to find some quiet. And as the smell of travelers and animals filled the air, the Son of God came into the world. The one who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45. Who as the Son of Man later would say he has no place to lay his head. Luke 9, 58. It begins here in Luke, in Luke 2. The only place he had to lay his head on the night of his birth was a manger. In Luke 2, Luke's telling of Jesus' birth has gone in seven verses from an empire-wide order down to a particular feeding trough in the small town of Bethlehem. 
The story is not of a perfect Christmas card nativity scene. It's of a broken, difficult situation into which the Savior came. Jesus is God's salvation, not coming just as an example to a good world, but as a Savior to a broken, sinful world. He didn't come to enlighten our already blossoming minds. He came to heal the sickness of our hearts. The truth of Jesus coming to be the Savior is helpful to bring perspective during this Christmas season. As I said, our conversations with relatives and friends may turn to the hardships that we face in life. And yes, it's a time for happy reunions and smiling faces and festivities. But the holidays are a painful reminder for many of the difficulties of life. Maybe the loss we've experienced of someone we love. Maybe you're caring for a relative at this time and it's a difficult time. For all of us, every day, this earth is a reminder of our sinfulness and our inability to bring ourselves joy. Which is why the message of Jesus' joy is such a ray of hope and light. Because into this world of sin, the hymn tells us, enters one who said in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus enters this story, the culmination of God's restoration plan. All right, now we get to these first evangelists. All right, it's time for the shepherds. That's what's traditionally looked at on the third Sunday of Advent, which we don't follow rigidly here, but it's a good structure to look forward toward the coming of Jesus, the anticipation of that. So let's give some time to the shepherds, these first evangelists. David, the shepherd boy king, has already been referenced here in Luke 2. And now we're introduced to several more shepherds. We don't know how many. But the way the story reads, the shepherds were on a hillside watching their flocks of sheep at the same time and in the same region where Jesus was born. Who were these shepherds? They were not like the, like, the likely audience. They were not the ones that many would have chosen for a marketing campaign to get the word out of Jesus' birth, not for an eternal king. Sometimes we are pretty hard on the shepherds, saying that they're just the bottom of the rung of society. We could probably make too much of that uh, a little bit. It seemed to be a noble profession, but a simple one and lowly. But these particular shepherds very well may have been followers of the living and true God because they responded right away to the message of the angel as if they had been waiting for that. So we don't know a lot about their spiritual condition, but it seems that they were leaning forward toward the coming of Christ as they should have been as followers of Yahweh. And why does God include this portion of the story? It's a great story, by the way. It's one of my favorite stories of the angel appearing to the shepherds. I think he includes it for at least two reasons. Number one, the angel's proclamation is very clear in defining Jesus' identity from the day of his birth. Who he is as the Savior and the joy of his coming. But the second reason I think this is included about the shepherds is that other than Mary and Joseph, it seems the shepherds were the first people to see Jesus and respond to him in worship and then in gospel proclamation. Showing how thousands and millions would later respond to the coming 
of the Son of Man, the Son of God. So let's look at chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The glory of the Lord and his brilliance showing the presence of God was coming to earth. Just as the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and the temple, the presence of God is with man. God in human form, Jesus, has arrived. But they were filled with great fear. They had the deer in the headlights look at this brilliant light that comes out of the sky. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. There's our phrase. Good news of great joy That will be for all the people. Simeon later in this chapter will say this is for the Jews as well as for the Gentiles. This is hope for everyone. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with this one angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying... Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The shepherds see one angel. Was it Gabriel? Very possibly. He's the one who's been the messenger here in Luke, but we're not sure. Appearing in this blaze of glorious light with the glory of the Lord shining around them. And they were obviously frightened. But the angel clearly identifies this child who was born just a short distance away as a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ, the Messiah, the one who will save and be exalted. And he will bring joy and salvation for all the people, it says. This one birth has universal implications. His coming is in accord with God's work to save. And several times in this story, as I said earlier, we started with a world empire-wide decree and moved quickly down to a very particular manger in Bethlehem. Well, now we're expanding back out to how this story changes the whole world. Because one birth of one child in a small town in Bethlehem will change the world. Fear not, for I bring you good news. Luke, in his gospel, loves to talk about the good news, the gospel. The message that God brings joy to sinners' hearts by forgiving our sin when we have faith in Jesus. That's why the birth of Jesus is good news. And the angel very clearly clarifies why Jesus came. He is a Savior. And this is what our world misses when we all celebrate Christmas, but don't talk about our sin and saving from sin. I love the fact in general that many people celebrate Christmas. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about the gospel with others. It's a great celebration. It's worth celebrating. But most of the celebrations around us really miss this simple identity of Jesus. 
the Savior part gets very glossed over. It's very traditional. The manger scene next to uh, the other of d- holiday displays of this time of year. So what an opportunity we have as believers to just as Paul said, this is an altar to the unknown God, let me share him with you who that is. Christmas season is here. Let's take an opportunity to share the identity of this one who was born. The story many people know. His identity many people do not. A savior who is Christ the Lord. Not a teacher, not just a philosopher, not merely an example, not a political reformer. He was the savior of the world. And once this is proclaimed, one of the most brilliant sights ever seen by any human eyes unfolds for these few shepherds. Lighting up the dark sky is a multitude of the heavenly host. How many is a multitude? I don't know. But it's a lot. I can imagine it filling your vision in the sky. The dark sky is no longer dark. As it's lit with brilliant light and angels doing what they do continually, praising God, declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he has pleased. Announcing that Jesus had entered humanity. This worship by the angels, which is what they do continually, was an invitation for the shepherds to also worship this Christ, as we should as well. Notice the angel statement. In heaven, glory be to God. And on earth, peace. To whom? Peace to those with whom God is pleased. With whom God is pleased. And the rest of the New Testament will tell us a little bit more, specifically Romans, about how God can be pleased with sinners. And Jesus' work will make that very clear. But Jesus came to bring peace to those who have God's favor. To those with whom he is pleased. We do not receive God's favor because of our works We receive it because he, in his love, decides to give it to us. So even in this first proclamation of the birth of Jesus, we are learning about his salvation purpose. To bring God's peace to those to whom God gives grace. Now the shepherds, when they see this glorious proclamation, how do they respond? Look at verse 15. I'm sure they were sad when the angel's display ended. But when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. They found Mary and Joseph, and just as was told to them, the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They repeated the angels' words. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They became worshipers of Christ. The end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, 
the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. First, the shepherds showed fear. But then faith. As the angels went away, the shepherds began talking about what they had seen. The conversation seemed to grow in excitement. And they said, we have to go see this. We have to go see this eternal, eternally significant birth. The shepherds were the first among many who would see Jesus, believe, worship, and then proclaim. They were called to see him. They chose in faith to go see him. They see Jesus. They believe in him. He is who the angels said he was. He's the Savior. They worshiped, glorifying and praising God. And they shared with others of this amazement, this marvelous event. Anyone who comes to Christ must do what the shepherds did. They must hear the revelation from God. And they must believe that that revelation is true. Now you may say, well, how could they doubt it? It was a beautiful angelic display. Same reason that many people disregard the revelation of God today. Seen clearly in scripture, seen in the beauty of creation. But for the shepherds, hearing and believing actually happened in very short succession. They were likely followers of the living God already. And they were eager to follow his revelation. So they came, they found Jesus, just as the angel said... And just like the shepherds, after we hear the revelation of God and believe it to be true, we must come and see Jesus. We do that initially at salvation. When God calls us from our sin and we place our faith in Christ. But really that begins a journey of every day saying we wish to see Jesus. I hope that's why you came today. It was not just to hear me preach or to sing some songs. And though those will hopefully be encouraging things. Hopefully you came to see Jesus today, to hear of his revelation and to respond in worship. Every day for the believer is a day desiring to see Jesus. They came, they found him, and they worshiped. And notice verses 17 to 20, when they saw it, they made it known. We can't keep the work of Jesus to ourselves. And neither could these first evangelists. And we don't know their gospel presentation in detail. We don't know how many steps they had to their gospel presentation. We don't know exactly how that went. Probably was pretty simple. This is what the angel said. I believe it and I've seen it. You and I need to be evangelists. We need to give the gospel. But let's not be afraid that we will not give the perfect presentation of Christ to others. If you've seen Jesus, you can share with others what you've seen. If you've believed in Jesus, you can share with others what you've believed. And that seems to be as simple as what the shepherds did here. They went everywhere proclaiming. what This specifically says they told others what the angels said. So Jesus is the Savior. The Savior of the world. He has come. They heard, they believed, they came, they worshipped, and they proclaimed. And this relates back to that great joy we discussed earlier. 
If we've received the great joy of forgiveness for our sins and peace in Christ, then we will long for others to share in that joy. When we are worshiping Christ, enjoying him, we will share his message. When the, when the shepherds told others about Jesus, they did it in such a way, it says, that those who heard it were amazed. Another great concept in the book of Luke. Marveling. Amazement. Wonder. Standing in awe. And I'd like to close today by considering this concept of wonder. It's true that many of us struggle to experience joy and peace. We're distracted by the world. We're overcome by the cares of this life. And one reason for this is we're not exercising our human, but God-given capacity for wonder. In the presence of Christ. We were made to look upon Jesus, his person and his works, and say, wow. To marvel. For our hearts to be filled with amazement. Not just curiosity about God from an intellectual standpoint. But to be filled with wonder At God the Father, the Creator, His creative works, nature. His work through Christ of salvation. His Word as revealed to us. This kind of marveling at the wonders of Christ will, in truth, overcome the joy stealers in our life. The joy stealing cares that keep us from experiencing this peace. Do you know Jesus? Have you believed in him? Do you stand in amazement? Do you read Luke chapter 2 sometime later this week just for the purpose of saying again, Lord, fill my heart with the wonder that God became a human being. And I will study it in detail, but let me stand back and worship in amazement. If you have believed and allowed your heart to realize its capacity for wondrous, marveling kind of worship, then you have, then have you, like the shepherds, shared this joy with others? That's the greatest motivation for evangelism, is our hearts full of the joy of Christ. And we see someone, we say, I would love for you to know this joy. The shepherds heard, they believed. They worshipped and they proclaimed. And the marveling at the incarnation of Jesus grew. One soul at a time. To where Jesus would later do some works and have teachings that others marveled at. And others continued to tell of his works. And others continued to be amazed. Until one day someone shared with you that your heart can be full of joy you receive the gift of Jesus Christ. Let's marvel. Let's be amazed this week that God became a human being to bring us good news of great joy. Don't deny the pain of this world. This doesn't look past the things that give us difficulty, but like a light shining in the shadows, it overwhelms it to where our attention goes straight to the light. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the love of Jesus Christ. For the love of God the Father in sending Jesus to earth. 
Thank You for sending the Holy Spirit to work and live among us. To draw our hearts to this message, for without Him we would have never believed. Thank You for bringing the revelation of Jesus' salvation work to the shepherds. And thank You for bringing that revelation to us through Your Scripture. I pray for someone who's here today who's never truly placed their faith and trust in Christ. They may be religious, they may have been around Christianity, but they've never opened their heart and experienced its capacity to wonder in amazement at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Would you draw their heart to saving faith, the kind that will bring them true joy and peace? Guide us this week and open opportunities for us to share Christ with others. Would you bring with us those who need the gospel next Sunday to our Christmas service and the Christmas Eve candlelight service so that they may hear of the good news of great joy. May we go in peace today. May we stand in amazement at the work of Jesus, the one who was born to die on the cross of Calvary, to, be, to live a perfect life, to die unjustly in our place, and to be raised again to new life as King of kings and Lord of lords. We submit to him in Jesus' name.